How do you say goodbye to the people that you love? This is a pressing question for Paige and I as we prepare for where the Lord is taking us in this next phase of ministry. But the reflection is worth consideration for for all of us. How could any expression be adequate to cover the range of different emotions, the expression of gratitude, of the life you shared with people you loved in the community of the church? History has shown us several examples of the goodbye uh, being done well, and, and there's a common thread among them. They carry with them a selfless character, but also the challenges of the legacy you leave behind. Lou Gehrig, uh, the famous New York Yankee, in his retirement from the sport of baseball due to a fatal illness, wanted to revert the attention from pity for himself and instead asked for the fans to consider himself the luckiest man in the world. Not because of himself, but if you read the rest of that speech, because of the people that surrounded him. The first president, George Washington, in his farewell speech in 1796, called for the nation to see its unified strength as a feature rather than his own position of leadership and asked for forgiveness for his own failures and faults. The greatest R&B group of all time, boys to men, had to express goodbyes in three of the greatest power ballads of all time. And I will fight you on this. End of the road, it's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday and one sweet day with Mariah Carey just to express the complexity of love lost and relationships that you leave behind. Why do we resonate with farewells? Why are we drawn to the goodbye? I'm going to propose to you today that this principle is a biblical one. All the examples are but a shadow of what it truly means to leave a legacy. The Christian legacy for all of us has the greatest thing to offer us in that our legacy is never built on us, but they are built on a greater foundation for us to consider today. The Apostle Paul, during his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, reflected on this in his final visit to the church in Ephesus during a time where Paul did not know what would happen next. And as he left, he preached to the elders of the church one last time, showing us not only how to say goodbye, but how to leave a legacy that has nothing to do with your legacy. So let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 24. Um, In your bulletins, I apologize, it says to verse 25, but we will just be reading up to verse 24. And look at God's word today. This is on page 929 in your pew Bibles, if you need scripture. Let's all stand as we read God's word together. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Let's pray together. Father, help us to see the legacy of our life in one that is guided by your call to go and testify in word and deed in life and death, body and soul, testify 
the gospel, the grace that covers all who proclaim the name of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the book of Acts, more intimately known by the early church as the Acts of the Apostles, that was the long-form title of the name of the book, follows the story of life after the farewell of Jesus Christ and the legacy left behind of the gospel spreading through the church to the nations. But if there had to be a central character in the story of Acts, it would be the life, conversion, journey, and trials of the Apostle Paul. A man once legendarily known for hunting down Christians, he became one himself and would dedicate the rest of his life on a journey throughout the known world, proclaiming the gospel wherever he could go. One such place was the city of Ephesus, a city of ancient Greece located in what is now modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was a frequent visiting place for Paul. A coastal city with a port where there was booming commerce, a a place where the gospel could easily spread amongst many different groups of people. And so here in chapter 20, he's getting ready to prepare for the final leg of his missionary journey, one that will bring him back to Jerusalem to be equipped and ultimately be sent to Rome. And he knows that he will have to say goodbye. So he gathers the leadership of the church together and gives the only sermon documented in the book of Acts to just the church. See, normally Paul speaks to a mixed group of believers and skeptics, but here he turns now to this group of people who he's discipled, he's, he's cared for, and loved so deeply, and, and he gives his most affectionate, most tender, most loving address to this church. And what legacy does he want to leave behind? Four things that will guide our time together here in this text. Four things. Number one, God calls us to go. Number two, God prepares us to go. Three, we go knowing the cost. And four, we go to testify the grace of God in the gospel. So let's start by looking at the first part of the Christian legacy, that God calls us to go. Paul starts in verse 22 by stating an obvious reality, but one that we ever rarely live out, that we have no idea where our lives will take us, but God knows and he calls us. This is true for each and every single one of us, and this was especially true for Paul. Up until now, Paul had an encounter with God, uh, I'm sorry, up until Paul had the encounter with God on the Damascus Road, uh, Paul's life had been the destiny of his own making. Paul was a premier Pharisee with credentials that would have made any person of his age jealous. He was known as the Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee who kept every bit of the 600 plus laws in the Old Testament to the exact letter. He was trained by the preeminent Jewish scholar of his day, Gamaliel, who even today, by the way, Jewish scholarship acknowledges Gamaliel as one of the best of the entire Jewish faith. Paul could have said, I was his star pupil. Paul could have lived the rest of his life, from the world's perspective, in a a position of authority, in a position of power, in a position where he would have all of his needs provided for, in a position where he had command and control of his destiny. But then God calls him, calling him to surrender all of the things 
that Paul and the world would have considered to be great, and God gives him something better. God's calling would take him all over the known world, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to Philippi, Ephesus, to the ends of the earth, in Rome. Though Paul has no idea where God is calling to him next, he has this confidence in knowing that God's calling is the best for him. Now, how does, how does Paul know this? And, and how do we know this as Christians, that God's calling truly is the best for us? Well, every Christian will understand this in one point of their life or another. You've planned out the trajectory of what your life would look like. You've got it all figured out. And then God calls you. I was going to be a music teacher out of college. I was going to be a band director of a high school, Mr. Song Teaching Band. How cool is that, right? It's destiny. The trajectory of my life was set. The glory of leading high schoolers to band competitions, winning festivals, that just seemed like paradise. Now, all those things are, certainly aren't bad things, but in my third year of it, it became clear to me that I wasn't meant to be called to that. See, you can be on a pathway that is wonderful to be on, but if it isn't where God is calling you, the joys you face will only be a shadow of the true life that God is truly calling you to and following hard after him. So for us here today, the question becomes, are you on God's calling? Or are you expecting God to be on your calling? Because the reality is this. Life will never go the way that you expect it to go because you don't hold the control to know what will happen in the future. But life will always go where God expects it to go. And so asking ourselves a question of where God has called us will always lead us to the place we are supposed to be and belong to. Pray to the Lord about your plans. Consider his commands his purpose. Consider how the kingdom of God will be blessed because of the direction he's leading you. Because when you do that, you'll be able to respond in the same way that Paul did in his previous life, that he he considers everything else before God called him to be a loss. To what? To the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Sometimes we are given the lie that to be a Christian means to give up the best things of life. And, and I'm here to tell you today that the best things of life don't hold a candle to discovering more and more about the love of Christ by loving him with your life. The Christian legacy is to follow God's call to go. But he hasn't left you alone. Nor did Paul feel as though this calling would leave him unequipped. Paul in this sermon reminds us of the truth in verse 23 that God not only calls us to go, but our second point, God prepares us to go. Paul knows that God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is, is leading him in every moment, and that those moments won't always be filled with pleasantries. For Paul, this meant the realization that suffering for the sake of following God's calling was inevitable. And that meant that God had prepared his heart to face the worst of faithful obedience. Now, This is not in contrast with what I just said in the first point about the joy of following God's call. Um, God calls us to a life better than we imagine ourselves having if we're ready to embrace God's vision, plan, and purpose for what that life looks like. 
You see, Paul didn't know that he would go from being in the most favored part of the temple as a Pharisee to a tent maker on the streets and in jail for sharing the word of God. Paul didn't know that he would be shipwrecked, beaten, carry thorns in his flesh. Paul didn't even know that he would preach sermons that would make people fall asleep and almost die by falling out of windows, or that he would be jailed and imprisoned repeatedly. Those weren't things that Paul would have ever wished for himself to experience, but God has prepared him to face those things with courage and conviction because the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to face challenges that we couldn't even begin to possibly understand. You know who understands this more than anyone else? Older, godly Christians. Uh, You know, old can be seen as a curse word, um, but I wish to reclaim that word here today because it gives us something to aspire to. Uh, I long for one day to be an old Christian. Why? Because it means I will have experienced so much suffering and trials for following the Lord, but I will also have come out the other side of that suffering with a greater perspective of God's faithfulness and provision and preparedness and mercy on the other side. All the youth kids here in the church, children's ministry, I I want all of you to aspire to be an old Christian because it means that the Holy Spirit will guide you through difficult times and show you through them how much God loves you and how much the gospel is glorified because you have endured. Um, I don't remember who exactly said it, but it's been in such an important life quote for me. Everyone wants Paul's ministry, but no one wants Paul's suffering. And the reality is that you can't have one without the other. Following the call of God will hurt. And the response in the extremes is either to run away from suffering or, on the other side, to be proud that you're suffering, to just seek after it. But Paul's response is different because Paul is making his suffering not about him at all, but the God who prepares him well for the journey ahead. He gives credit to the Lord and the Holy Spirit for the way that it has prepared him. What this also means for us today is that Christians should not be surprised when suffering or trial or persecution occurs. Jesus has already told us that the world will hate us because of him. But Jesus, interestingly enough, in his life and ministry, doesn't turn that into disengagement or discouragement. Far from that. Jesus speaks to those who would disagree the most with him. Jesus meets up with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the Samaritan woman at the well, the Roman centurion and the Syrophoenician woman. And he engages with them so that they can turn, meet and see Jesus for who he really is, not what the world has called him to be. We follow Jesus' footsteps, knowing that we are going into a world that may want nothing to do with us, but doing so because Christ is calling us to the very people that God so loved that he would give up his only son for them. The Christian legacy is filled with trials, but God prepares us to go. And with God's calling and preparation assured, we can know that we go knowing the cost That's our third point here today. We go knowing the cost. Verse 24 speaks of a surprising line from Paul that he considers his life being worth nothing to him. Now, now, what what does that mean? Let's, Let's really break down that sentence. Is Paul a fatalist? 
Is, is Paul seeking to die? Should Christians treat their lives as inconsequential? And, and how does this play into the doctrine of knowing that we are created for a purpose, knowing that God loves us when he created us? What, what is Paul saying here? It's important to know what Paul is not saying. Paul isn't stating that life is in meaningless or that life is, is somehow not valuable. Uh, I mean, we, after all, see in Paul's letter to the Romans that the love of God towards his people extends to the value of their lives. And, and Paul's letter to the Ephesians shows the value of God's love from eternity past, that he called us from eternity past, that he predestined us to him. But so what is Paul saying here? Pa- Paul is, is stating that God's calling has given him uh, a, a, a different meaning of the sense of what is worthy. The mission that God has given him for the gospel is worth every bit of suffering that he will face and more. It's using the life that God has given to him and giving it back to the one who owns it in the first place. Let me pause here and state an obvious truth, but, but again, one that we're all prone to forget. You will give your life to something. You will make your life meaningless to something. You will lose sleep over this thing. You will spend your money, your time. You will sacrifice your relationships, maybe even your family. You will devote yourself to something that will be at all times all-consuming. And the question you have to ask yourself is this. Why are you giving your life to this thing? What is the value of it? What does it offer you in return? How is this thing going to last? I'm well aware that right now it's a time of year where all of these questions are coming to the forefront. After all, we are five weeks into the NFL football season. And every year, without fail, if your team you've been rooting for since childhood is suffering, the team that you spent hours watching every game, buying their t-shirts, paying for overpriced hot dogs in the stands, watching the management and ownership that burying that team into the ground, and if you're anything like me, sitting at the very bottom of the NFC East, one of the most ridiculous ownerships in all of football, you begin to ask yourself the very question of why do I care so much about this? Why do I sacrifice my time to invest it? Alabama fans are feeling it today. Why do I care about injury reports? Even going into the dreamland to try and create my perfect team in a place literally called fantasy football to win a trophy that only matters to the 12 friends who have simultaneously live in my delusion. It's because we give our lives to things all the time that aren't worthy of it. And sure, it's fun. In moderation, a great distraction, but it isn't worth your life. What you give your life to the only thing that is worth it. But when you give it, your life to the only thing that is worth it, you can rest assured that everything that you've suffered for will be worth it in the end. And friends, Christ's glory is worth it. Every time you gave and sacrificed for somebody else and they responded in negativity, but you love them with the love of Christ anyway, it's worth it. Because Jesus was there too. Every time you lost sleep trying to tell your family member about Christ, to to come back to his love and grace, it's worth it. Because God isn't near to you in the brokenness. He understands your rejection. Every time you try to share someone about Christ's love and told that you were a bigot, 
that you follow a religion of lies, it's worth it. Every time you cared for someone in need in the name of Jesus, it's worth it for the kingdom of God. Because what is the promise of scripture? The grass withers and the flowers fade. Sports teams will end. Money will dissipate. But the word of God will endure forever. Paul's life and legacy meant nothing to him, not because he didn't value his life, but because he valued it so much that he would give everything he had to the only thing that was worth it. The Christian legacy is going because we know the cost. Finally, our last point here. Because we know the cost, we go to testify the grace of God in the gospel. Paul's aim was to finish the race in verse 24 and complete the task that God had given to him. Now, what do we know about races? They're hard, they're difficult, but they don't last forever. Races end And the rest is coming for all of us who confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. What do we know about tasks? Tasks can be completed. God is not giving us a mission that we cannot do because he's given us his Holy Spirit. And and what is this task that Paul's been given? The task that Paul's been given is to testify. Testify. Now, the word testimony in today's Christianity has almost exclusively meant been the telling of a story, the telling of the gospel. And it doesn't help that we hear about the word testimony used in law courts as a retelling of what has happened as witnesses. Now, it's certainly not anything less than that, but Paul's idea of testimony in sharing the word of God and the crucified Christ as the only hope of salvation, it's certainly not less than that. But there's something more to this word testimony that we have to unlock here, that we have to keep in mind. The Hebrew translation for testimony gives us something to consider when it comes to the nature of testimony. In the Jewish tabernacle in the Old Testament, the tables of testimony were held in the Ark of the Covenant. And and what were the, the, the tables of testimony? It was the Ten Commandments. It was God commands to all his people to live out the good news of the covenant of grace that God made with his people. It was there not only to teach them about gospel words, but gospel deeds, indicative and imperative. Because you are a living testimony of God's grace, go and fulfill your calling. The fullness of Paul's gospel was one filling both tables of the law to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Love your neighbor as yourself. These are not mutually exclusive things. To testify is more than a mere proclamation, but a gospel that is incarnate and living out the life of Jesus that that called forth the dead into life. If you look at Acts chapter 20, uh, we didn't have time to look at the whole speech, but I want to emphasize verses 32 to 35. So look at Acts 20, 32 to 35, because I think here you will see Paul's understanding of testimony in full. Look at verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then look at verse 35. In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, Paul is not a social gospel proclaimer when he says this, but what is he saying to the Ephesian elders? 
that testifying the gospel calls us to a ministry that transforms us and changes those who listen to us. As Jesus said, to be salt and light to the earth, to care for the orphan and the widow, to welcome the refugee and the stranger, to value and treasure life as those made in the image of God. Our understanding of the gospel leads to this full transformation of our lives to be directed to Jesus and guides us to the generosity that we've been given through the grace of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins made into a new creation, life eternal poured upon us, the mercy that we did not deserve by his life, death, and resurrection. And now we are given the keys of the kingdom to extend that grace to the world around us. Our legacy is of the gospel to show and tell the world about the never-ending full love of Jesus and to show them. And in this, Paul's goodbye to the church in Ephesus was modeling something greater about Jesus and the way that Jesus says goodbye. When Jesus left his disciples, Jesus reminded them that their mission, their calling, was one that Jesus had been preparing them for his entire life. The calling that Jesus fulfilled to endure and embrace the suffering, even death on a cross. The calling was to testify about the good news that he is the great one worth living for. He is the one worth giving all their lives to. He is the one that tells us to testify and go and make disciples of all nations and to obey all that he commanded them. Because in the end, the Christian legacy has nothing to do with the Apostle Paul, with John Song, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, the PCA, or anything like that. The Christian legacy is that our goodbyes and farewells are just another testimony of God's grace. The legacy of Christ in me is to live and to die is to gain. So as we say goodbye to one another, knowing that we aren't really saying goodbye, uh, we will spend eternity with each other in heaven. We are saying We'll see you all again someday when the race is complete, when the task is finished, and we all can look at eternity together and save our striving, our lives. We're all worth it because the realization of our greatest hope has come. Christ has come again. We are raised to life with him, and we can rest in the legacy that is all his. Let's pray together. Father, We do thank you that our lives are nothing to us because you are worthy. Lord, may the legacy of all of our lives point to Christ's legacy. Lord, a Christ who was called to go from eternity past into a world where he knew that he would suffer many things, but did it so that his life would be a living testimony of your love and faithfulness to an unworthy people and that you would call us and give us new life that we could give our lives to share the good news of that message. Lord, for every single one of us here in this room, may we reorient our callings, our lives to not only suffer well for the sake of the gospel, but to live well in seeing the good life that you would have for us when we surrender all things to you. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you 
for this good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.